Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. Happy Father's Day. How are you? All right, if you have a Bible, open it to Romans chapter 16. This is our second to last message in the letter to, Rome, to the Roman church. We will end next week. And then the following week, the last week of June, uh, as, as Logan alluded to, Conrad Mbiwe, uh, internationally known and respected pastor from Zambia, will be here and he'll be preaching that morning, the 30th, and then that evening. We'll have a special service in the evening with Pastor Mbiwe, along with several other churches that we're in partnership with here. Of course, Midtree, our church plant, and then a few other churches that we have a lot of friendship with will join us that evening, so we'd love for you to come. And then that Monday, July 1st, pray for fruit for this. Conrad is going to be doing a, a preaching and teaching seminar that we're opening up to all pastors in the city and Bible teachers to come and learn from him. He's going to do two seminars in the morning about preaching Christ from the scriptures and interpreting the scriptures rightly, a gospel-centered preaching. So by the way, if you're a Bible preacher, a Bible teacher in this church, maybe you teach a women's Bible study or a men's Bible study or a Sunday morning class, we'd love for you to feel free to come to that. Um, if you can get off work, we'd love for you to do that. Um, and let us know that you're interested in that, and we'll sign you up for that. But pray for fruit along those lines. And then Logan Copley is going to preach on July 7th. Uh, a week after one of the greatest preachers living today. So, <laughs> well, <laughs> it's going to be exciting to, to hear Logan um, uh, preach that Sunday before they go to Serbia. Do you consider yourself tolerant? Is tolerance a good thing? I think it is, sometimes. Is tolerance a bad thing? I, I think it is sometimes. A lot of it depends on the context. We live in a culture where tolerance is often the highest and non-negotiable ideal. And generally, people that have a conservative perspective on anything, whether it be theology or whatever, are often the only people who can't have that viewpoint. So it's intolerant of people that think like we do biblically, but our culture worships at the idol of tolerance. But as we come to the end of Romans, we're going to see that the Bible actually calls us to a kind of intolerance in some matters, specifically when it comes to theological error. So right here at the end of this grand letter, as Paul is just saying goodbye, he's going to say some very severe things about people that he believes are not preaching the truth. In essence, he's telling the church, and the Holy Spirit is telling us today to watch out and to be wise and discerning and to understand the truth and understand error because the stakes are very high. So let me, let me pray, and then I'm going to read this. In fact, let me read the scripture and then pray, and then we'll work our way through it. This is the Apostle Paul speaking to the church at the end of Romans, starting in verse 17, chapter 16. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. 
For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cordus greet you. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to, to help us understand this text and to, to apply it to our lives. Lord, thank you for this, this ending of Romans, this almost to the end of Romans where we find ourselves. I pray that you would help us to understand the gospel better, that we'd understand truth better, that you would help us to be more discerning and more wise as we think about what this text has for us today, that you would make us wise as to the ways of the world and to evil things, but innocent as well and, and humble and meek, discerning. Make us love Jesus more, I pray. Make us love truth more. Make us more compassionate towards people who are caught up in error. Help us to be equipped to guide them out of error as a result of our time. And for my friends that are here this morning that do not know Jesus, Lord, I pray that you would open up their eyes to see the beauty of the gospel, that we have an enemy, and Jesus will soon crush him under our feet. Help us now. Bring glory to your name and joy to our souls. In Jesus' name, amen. To give you a flow of the outline of this text, I think in this text we see a warning and a promise. A warning and a promise. First, the warning. Let me read again, just work through a little bit, verses 17, 18, and 19. Paul is is calling the church to watch out in verse 17 for those who cause divisions and create obstacles. And they're doing this because it's contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. In other words, everything that Paul has spoken to them about or written to them about up to this point in the letter to them. And he says about these people that are teaching wrong doctrine and creating obstacles and division, avoid them. Verse 18, then he characterizes these people. He says they do not serve Jesus. They don't serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. This is telling. We're going to talk about theological error here in just a moment. And we should note that people who are deceptive or who are wrong theologically and are leading people away from the truth often do not jump out from behind a rock with a sign stamped across their forehead saying, I'm a heretic. They're often smooth talkers and and people that are actually very, very gifted. And they they are sometimes hard to discern. And oftentimes, much of what they say is true. And their air is mixed with truth. It's very difficult to discern oftentimes. In verse 19, he says, Your obedience is known to all, so I rejoice over you. He's commending them. But again, again, he's warning them. I want you to be wise as to what is good and true. In other words, good doctrine. And innocent as to what is evil. In other words, stay away from these wrong teachings. 
Paul does not name the people or the particular issues that he is concerned about here at the end of Romans, which leads us to believe that maybe it's a more blanket kind of general warning to all Christians. There are portions in the Scripture, especially his letter to Timothy in 2 Timothy, where he does actually name particular people and speak about them and, and, and avoid them. But here he's giving a kind of general warning. And all we know is that whatever these false teachers are teaching is that it is causing division and it's creating obstacles, which is the very antithesis, is the very opposite of the point of Paul's letter. He's speaking about this great, grand, glorious gospel that has broken down the division between God and men and the division between man and man, between Jew and Gentile. And he's wanting to create a bridge through the right preaching of the gospel between God and man, which is Christ, and not creating an obstacle. And what these false teachers are doing is that they are really counteracting the two purposes of Paul writing this gospel. They're causing divisions, and they're creating obstacles for people actually coming to know Jesus. So, Paul's warning to the church here at the end of his letter is the stakes are so high. And how does this apply to us today? Well, the stakes are high for us as well because theological error and people that want to cause division and create obstacles are still with us today. So how does this apply to us? I want to, I want to take you through some things that I hope will help our discernment and help us to be wise as to, to what is good and evil, and to, to, in a sense, kind of develop a certain theological radar for us as a church. So the first thing that I think that, I, I wanna, that is good for us to understand is essentials, four essentials to good doctrine or biblical doctrine. Four essentials to, to, to right thinking about the Bible. These are gr- sort of overarching categories. And from what I can tell, as I've thought about this over the past few weeks, knowing that this passage is coming, most theological error that Paul is warning the church here at the end of Romans, and most theological error that we see in our culture today, comes from a misunderstanding or as a result of a misunderstanding of these four kind of categories of biblical doctrine. Granted, they're very, very broad, so this is kind of a wide brush that I'm painting with here, but I want to put these categories in your mind to help develop our discernment a little bit better as we think through this text. Four essentials for biblical doctrine. First, for biblical doctrine. First, a right understanding of the nature of God a right understanding of the nature of God. Now, I realize it's a very broad category. That's what the whole Bible is about, is God. But I'm here speaking specifically about the triune nature of God. God reveals himself in the scriptures to us as three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, this is a great mystery. This is not going to be a sermon on the beauties and the mysteries and the glory of the Trinity. We could do a whole series of sermons on that and not get to the bottom of that glorious well But God has revealed himself as three in one, one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And oftentimes, theological errors, heresies, which is a word that means uh, theological error that, that will lead people away from a true understanding of the gospel, historically, heresies often come from a misunderstanding of the nature of God, specifically the triune nature of God. Historical examples of this all the way back in the early centuries, Arianism, which misunderstood the Trinity. And then we even see today, we 
We see like Jehovah's Witnesses and, and Mormonism as being common examples or modern day examples of misunderstanding the triune nature of God. So a right understanding of God's nature, especially his triune nature, is essential to understanding the Bible. Also, I would nest underneath this right understanding of the nature of God as a, as a proper and biblical understanding of the sovereignty of God in all things. Now, in this, I'm not talking about um, some more secondary debates between maybe a Reformed perspective of salvation and uh, a Wesleyan and Armi or Arminian free will understanding of salvation. That's very, very important. Um, I, I clearly, I think you would understand if you've been here for a while, know that I would hold to a reformed position of salvation, meaning that God is utterly sovereign. Here I'm speaking more broadly about people that believe that the future is kind of open and that God is reacting. The future is unknown to God, which is a very common thing that's going on in some liberal theological circles. It's called open theism, as if God has sort of wound this universe up. He's created it. And he's kind of going along with it as, it as it happens. That's a theological error that is absolutely wrong. And there are people today, notable people, that believe this. Um, and that is, that, is, that is a misunderstanding of the nature of God. The second essential for a right biblical doctrine is a right understanding of the nature of Christ. Now, obviously, Jesus is fully God. But we're whittling down here into the person and work of Christ. And this, again, historically is where, where people have misunderstood and right, rightly understanding the nature of Christ, which, like the Trinity, is a great mystery, but we can see it and behold it and understand it sufficiently from the Bible. The Bible clearly teaches that Jesus is fully God or truly God and fully man, and truly God, and has been a fully man, fully man, fully God, truly man, truly God, and has been forever. But throughout the years, throughout the centuries, wrong understandings of the nature of Christ, either taking away from his full humanity or taking away from his full deity, his full godness, has led people into error. Again, this is an error of Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. Jesus is fully man and fully God, and has always been fully God. He did not become fully God. He, was, he has never not existed. It's always been Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So a right understanding of the nature of Christ. And any challenges to that through the centuries or in modern day are, are bad doctrine that will lead people away from a right understanding of the gospel. Why is this so important, by the way? This isn't just some sort of you know, theological point for, for academia. Because... Our biggest problem is sin. Our biggest problem is God's wrath against our sin. And only God can save us from Himself. And so we need Jesus, who is fully God, to save us from God, who is fully God. That's one of the clear reasons why it's so important for us to understand the nature of Christ. The third right understanding that we need to understand the essentials of biblical doctrine is a right understanding of the nature of the Bible. Historically, the Bible has been attacked, but we know from the Bible's witness about itself that it is inspired by God. Listen to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. The Apostle Paul writes, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 
from this and other scriptures that I won't take the time to read, we, that the church has historically believed that the Bible is, as it says here, breathed out by God or inspired by God. And because God has breathed out this word through the hands of the Old Testament prophets and through the ministry of the New Testament apostles, which the church then, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, because it came through the prophets and because it came through the apostles, gathered what we now have as our Bible, the church has recognized this collection of letters and books, these 66 letters, as God's inspired, breathed out word. And because God has breathed it out through his servants that wrote this Bible, it is without error. It's inerrant. It's infallible. It's unable to be wrong on anything that it comments on. And because it is God's word, breathed out by him without air, it has all authority. So we don't come to the word. First of all, we don't worship the, the word. We worship the God that it points us to. But the word of God is not something that we come to judge. We are judged by it. So, so historically, when cultures and churches or groups of people start to doubt the authority and the timelessness of God's word, they inevitably run into error and problems. And that is one of the things that we see in many, many theological errors today. And finally, fourthly, uh, an area where we, that I think is essential to a right understanding of biblical doctrine is a right understanding of the nature of mankind. What does the Bible say about us as God's created people? It says in Genesis 1 that we are made in the image and likeness of God. So any heir that wants to, uh, to subordinate one ethnic group or culture under another is, is satanic. It's attacking God's image. But not, we, although we are made in God's image, we see that very early on in Genesis chapter 3 that mankind is also fallen. And so man is not neutral. The Bible says in, in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 that we, because of sin, are dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, verse 3, once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So that's everybody. That's what the Bible clearly says. So because of the fall, because of Genesis 3, because Adam and Eve, our first parents, disobeyed God and were separated from God's presence in the garden, kicked out of the garden, to be separated from life is spiritual death, and that is the natural state of all mankind. We are all born, this, this, this text is very clear, we are by nature sinners. So if a fountain is polluted, all of the water that comes from that fountain will be polluted, right? And we come from the fountain head of the first humans, Adam and Eve. And so we now, under the providence of God, this did not shock him. He knew that this was going to happen. This is all part of his divine plan. But mankind now, after the garden, after the fall, is by nature fallen. And this then has huge implications about the need of mankind. 
We are not born in some natural state. This was the historical heir of a man named Pelagius in the fourth century. He believed and he challenged Augustine, one of the early church fathers, about the, the nature of mankind. Augustine saw in the scriptures and rightly believed that mankind was fallen and didn't just need help, but needed to be rescued and saved and brought back to spiritual life through the gospel, whereas Pelagian believed that mankind was born in a kind of neutral state, and depending on the environment and upbringing that that person had, they could either kind of go good or bad. Now, strangely enough, Pelagius admitted that it seems like everybody has gone bad, but he held out the possibility that you could possibly be good. And when you believe that theological error, it undermines the need for salvation, which is the whole point of the gospel. And so, a right understanding of the nature of mankind is essential to, to right doctrine. And I would add, a kind of modern-day adaptation of this is a kind of, a kind of uh, a fruit off of this, is a misunderstanding we see in our culture of even what it needs to be created male and female. I mean, if you go on Facebook and you choose your gender, you have like some 20-something options. The Bible's clear that we were all created male or female, one or the other. And our culture is confused about that, and that is a wrong understanding about the nature of mankind. Okay, so those are four essential areas, kind of headings, that I think all sort of theological air sort of comes from. And Paul is warning us to be aware of these things. So what are some common false gospels in our day? Paul is not very specific here. And I, I think, I realize we're coming to the end of Romans, and, and part of me wants to just kind of go out on a shout, you know, and actually we're going to do that next Sunday because there's this doxology, and we're just going to look at the whole glorious message of Romans. I promise you I won't re-preach it, well, maybe a little bit, but we're going we're gonna to end on the glory of God in the gospel. But, but, I think I would be doing a disservice to this text if we just kind of skinned over it and said, you know, there's theological air out there. You know, you should be aware of it. Watch out for these things. And, you know, kind of keep your head on a swivel because there's some bad stuff out there. If we didn't get specific about some of the things and the ways that theological air rears its ugly head in our culture today. So let me give you some false gospels, some false teachings that arise from misunderstandings of these essential doctrinal areas that I just went through that we see in our day. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you four areas, four kind of four common false gospels in our day. Before I do that, let me give you a few thoughts. First, I offer this list in all humility. I want you to know that I realize that, uh, that nobody is, is theologically perfect. I certainly am not. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians that, that, it's, that, that I strive for the upward call in Christ Jesus. And so, so certainly there are gaps in my theological understanding as well. I want to offer that in all humility. I am going to name some names. And some of you, because we grow up in this age of tolerance where everybody just wants to hold hands and sing kumbaya and get along, will be offended by that. But Paul in other places, like 2 Timothy chapter 2, does mention the name of people like Hymenaeus and Philetus who are swerving from the truth. And he wants, because he loves his people, he loves the people that he's ministering to, he wants to be very clear in all humility about who they should watch out for. And I think pastorally, it's my responsibility to do the same. 
So I want to be clear. Although it would take us much longer than half of one sermon to be clear about all the theological error out there, I want to put some things on your radar screen. Another thing that makes this difficult is that there are often elements of truth in false representations and false teachings that makes it hard to discern. And certainly this list is not exhaustive. But I do want to offer some thoughts about common false gospels in our day. And let me just also commend to you, there's this... Um, there's this DVD, this, this movie that has been done, a documentary called American Gospel, uh, done by some Christian leaders. It's just an excellent, it's about two hours. It's an excellent, excellent uh, documentary on some of the false gospels that we see in the American culture today. We got 50 of these. These are DVDs for those of you that are under 30. Um, there's, a, there's actually, there's a, there's a physical thing where you actually put this in and it plays on here. It's crazy, I know. But you can also, you can also download this on Amazon Prime um, or on the internet, um, but I, I would highly commend this to you. Uh, th this is well, well done. We've got about 50 of them in the resource room on sale for $3, just covering our cost for getting them, or you can download it on the internet. Um, so, so some common false gospels that, that, are, that are present in our culture, again, not exhaustive but that I want you to watch out for and be wise. And these are under kind of broad headings. The first is the prosperity and health and wealth gospel. The prosperity and health and wealth gospel. Now, if you've been around Crosspoint for a while, you've probably heard this alluded to oftentimes in sermons as a critique. But to, but to be clear, the prosperity gospel is a wrong understanding of the teaching of the Scriptures in that it takes too much of what is promised in heaven and tries to bring it into the present. If, if I could say what the, the theological, the root of the theological error of the prosperity gospel is that it, it turns God into a kind of genie that is there to serve our temporary earthly desires. It really is a personification of Paul's description of these false teachers that their God is their belly. In other words, what I want here in this life. And, and strangely enough, I actually think that the prosperity gospel is not prosperous enough because it promises earthly riches that moth and rust will eat and destroy when actually what is promised us is eternity with Christ which is better by far than any earthly riches. And it tries to bring too much of eternity into the passing present. And it stems from a misunderstanding all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. We won't take the time to go there. But in Genesis chapter 12, remember, we've talked about it often, where God calls this man Abram, who later becomes, becomes Abraham. And he says, Abraham, through you, I am going to make a nation that will bless all the peoples of the earth, and I'm going to give you land and seed and blessing. I am going to bless you. And then in the New Testament, Galatians and Romans interpret that, sheds further light for us on what God means in that promise to Abraham. He's saying that that promise to Abraham of seed was one person, which is Christ, so the faith that God gave Abraham in the Old Testament was a kind of shadow, a kind of 
early gospel in the promises of God, which we see is fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so the faith of Abraham in the Old Testament wasn't a desire for earthly riches. It was a desire in the goodness and promises of God, which was a shadow in the Old Testament, which is now revealed to us in the New Testament. And what is the promises of the the glory and blessing of God? It is reconciliation with God and peace with God and eternity with Him forever, which is blessings, the true Canaan land, which is heaven forever and ever and ever. We see that explained to us in the New Testament in Galatians 3 and in Romans chapter 4 and 9 and other places. But they misunderstand the blessing to Abraham and they personalize it to mean earthly riches. And from that comes all sorts of error, like promised healing. They misunderstand the atonement of Jesus about the healing that's offered in the atonement. The healing that is offered in the atonement is healing our separation from God because of our sins. That's not to say that God sometimes doesn't heal us physically as a kind of mercy to point us towards eternity, but the healing that we need is our separation from God because our spirits are dead and wounded because of our sin, not because we have one leg that is longer than the other or we've got some earthly ailment. And they misunderstand that. And they lead people to seek the gifts over the giver and often make an idol out of the gifts rather than the giver. That's the great heir. Who are some notable names? Benny Hinn, obviously. Many of you would probably have heard of him on TV. Kenneth Copeland, false teacher. Kenneth Hagin. He's, I believe he passed away a few years ago, but he has a son that's still preaching. And he is really the father in a lot of ways, of, of modern-day American prosperity gospel. T.D. Jakes, false teacher. Very eloquent, very persuasive, false teacher. Joyce Myers, false teacher. Paula White, a false teacher. Just because the president had her pray for him, friend, she is a false teacher, and she has led many astray. Creflo Dollar, false teacher. Joel Osteen, a kind of light, sort of happy prosperity gospel preacher, but he's a false teacher. And many, 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 if not most, of the other TBN personalities are false prosperity gospel teachers. The second common false gospel in our day I'd put under the category or heading of the signs and wonders gospel. The signs and wonders gospel. And this is a kind of of offspring of the prosperity gospel in many ways. In fact, many of these people kind of cavort together. And and this gospel comes from a kind of ultra uh, Pentecostal charismatic wing of the church. I want to be careful to distinguish between brothers and sisters in the Lord who are Pentecostals and charismatic, who I would have some significant differences with theologically. I, I, I speak compassionately because I came to faith in that stream of the church and I'm no longer in that stream of the church. I think there is some significant error there, but I think that your average kind of humble, God-fearing, Bible-believing, Pentecostal, charismatic person does not fall in this category. I think there's a, there's a bunch of people out there like that that are just good folks that see some of the secondary issues that I think are very important aspects of doctrine differently. I'm not talking about them. 
but sort of in that camp, a kind of fringe group are people that are really into signs and wonders, a kind of power gospel. Again, it's a sort of offshoot of the prosperity gospel. Some examples of this, and I mentioned this a few weeks ago, is Bethel Church out in Redding, California, and their pastor, Bill Johnson, who has been preaching this signs and wonder gospel falsely for several decades. He wrote a book called When Heaven Invades Earth. It, it, is, it is a false understanding of the Bible. They misunderstand who Jesus is, and they wrongly teach that Jesus during his earthly ministry was solely man and not also God, that he, in a sense, sort of stopped being God when he was a man on earth. And so all of the miracles that Jesus did during his earthly ministry were completely out of his, in his human form as he was fully submitted to God, and they used that wrong understanding of the nature of Christ as an example as to how we, if we just have enough faith and we believe it enough, then we too can do the signs and wonders that Jesus did. And this church out in California, Bethel Church, I think teaches all sorts of heresy. And one of the reasons I'm very concerned about them is because their music ministry, Bethel Church and Jesus Culture and others, are very, very popular amongst churches today, even churches in our circles. And young people sing their music, and they're very, very talented musically, and some of their songs aren't, aren't that bad. And so they're, they're, they kind of lead people into uh, this, this, I think, this teaching of Bill Johnson in this church. And friends, it is heretical. And we should be aware of it. This is an exhaustive uh, explanation of all that's wrong with that teaching, and specifically that church. But my big concerns about it is that it undermines the whole point of the Bible. It sees God, again, in a kind of 21st century example of a kind of prosperity gospel as someone there to work healing and power and authority for us here in this life. And they see salvation as walking in full power or full human realization of this kind of demigodness and not being reconciled to God through Jesus. And although they would say that they believe the Bible and a person must trust in Jesus for salvation, all of their prophetic words and all of their signs and wonders serve to undermine the sufficiency of the word and atonement or reconciliation with Jesus is seen and reduced merely to a kind of necessary first step to get into the team so that you can do the real stuff. Friends, that's false. And there are people in this city that are very into this ministry. In fact, several years ago, I remember a young man visited our church and I, had, I spoke, I alluded something in my sermon about how signs and wonders had a particular purpose in the Bible and this young man came down and after the message was very confused and very troubled by what I said and in my conversation with him, I realized that he was on his way to go to the Bethel School of Ministry in Redding, California where he would be trained and sent out with this type of wrong understanding of the gospel. So it's, it's prevalent, even in, in the deep south here. Um, thirdly, a false gospel that we see often in our culture is uh, what I would sort of categorize as a progressive gospel. And, and, of course, that can include many things, but I'm thinking here specifically about the doctrine of mankind and the doctrine of human sexuality. 
We see major denominations, historic denominations that the Lord has used for great good in our country over the past 300 years, 400 years, reversing course on essential, just clear understandings of what it means to be male and female in the Bible. And because I think they're going along with the course of this world, because they are not buoyed and, and fastened to the gospel, they, they're going along with whatever the culture says about human sexuality. And they are doing things like endorsing same-sex unions between um, men and men and women and women, and they're even going so far as to ordain clergy who are open practicing homosexuals. Now, friends, a pastoral word about this. I, I want to say, and I don't want to come across like some you know, fundamentalist legalist that has no mercy or compassion. That's not the case, friends. I'm not trying to single out homosexuality or gender confusion as some sort of unpardonable sin. It is along with all human brokenness and human sexual brokenness, all of us are sexual sinners on some level if we've passed the age of puberty. And heterosexual sin is condemned in the scriptures, and if you remain in it, unrepentant of it, it will lead you straight to hell just like homosexual sin will. All of it will. But it is not loving for us to allow a person without clearly teaching them what the Bible says about what it means to be male and female, and what it means to be a human being submitting your sexuality to the way God has designed us, it's not loving to endorse what the Bible clearly condemns. And we live in a world where major denominations in the history of our country are capitulating on this, and they're leading people astray. It's a false progressive gospel. And by the way, just one, one little aside on that. And one of the reasons why I think it is so important that we understand the differences between the role in men and women, for men and women in the church, and this is a little technical, but I'm just going to offer this to you for those of you who, who want to go further or talk to me or any of the pastors about this in more detail later. One of the reasons I, I think that we understand, as I spoke last week, about the roles between men and women in the church and how the Bible's clear about that is that the same interpretive principle that theologically progressive churches use to validate homosexuality is the same interpretive principle that they use to say that women can be pastors and elders in a church. I am not saying that all churches that have female pastors are on a slippery slope to ordaining homosexuality or endorsing homosexuality. I am saying that churches that discard the Bible and say that these timeless eternal principles in the Bible were merely cultural adaptations and shouldn't be heeded today, that's the same interpretive logic applied to two different things, whether or not women can serve as pastors and elders or whether or not homosexuality is still um, you know, spoken of uh, it is still a sin today. It's the, it's the same principle. And so, so there's, there's a kind of slippery slope there that I, I, I want my brothers and sisters that are in churches that don't understand the right understanding of men and women in the church to be aware of. Because these things are serious. And then finally, and fourthly, is the, I think this is probably the most dangerous. Aren't you glad you came to church today, by the way? <laughs> Friends, I'm, listen, I'm bound by the text. 
right? I mean, I'm bound by the text. And I wouldn't love you if I didn't, I, come on. So I'm, I'm just appeal to you to, to take these things seriously. The, the fourth, and I, I think maybe the most insidious, and maybe the one that we in this room are the most vulnerable to is the pragmatic self-help gospel. It says it's very common. It's hard to put your finger on. But it's a kind of church culture and theological understanding that isn't so bold as I think as the prosperity gospel is. You know, pray for a Cadillac or send me this money on this telethon and, you know, God will bless you with, you know, you know erasing of all your debt. Or It's not so bold as the signs and wonders uh, 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 false gospel that says, you know, um, you know, pray if you have enough faith and God will heal you of that, of that thing or, or give you some sort of power in evangelism. It's a more subtle, a more subtle but muted form of a false gospel that wants to put you and your successful living and sort of your earthly happiness and functionality, functionality as the center of the universe. And so it boils down the message of the gospel, which is the glory of God in reconciling lost sinners to himself through his son to how God has given you tips to be a better leader or to be a better husband or to be a better... And if, does the Bible, if you follow it, will it help you be a better leader? Of course. It's hard to discern. Will it help you be a better husband? Will it help you be a better friend? Yes. But it is seeing the gospel and the centrality of the work of Christ as just merely the first step. But now let's get down into the real stuff about seven steps to have a better Tuesday or eight steps to be feel better about yourself. And it's very subtle. And churches that believe the gospel and confess the gospel and would have the gospel on their websites and would be part of faithful denominations because many pastors, because their God is their belly and they just want people to like them and they just want church numbers to increase, preach a self-help pragmatic gospel to make people feel better about themselves. And it's subtle, and it's insidious, and it's destructive. And friends, I'm prone to it as well. I am. That's why I'm not coming across like I'm some authority that has it all right. Read Acts chapter 17, verses 10 and 11. Write that down and read it later. And aspire to be like these people that Luke speaks about in Acts chapter 17. He says that when Paul was preaching the gospel to them in this place called Berea, there were these people in Berea, the Bereans, who, saw, who went back to the scriptures after Paul taught them to make sure that what he was telling them was true. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul is writing to the whole Galatian church and he says that if anybody brings you a gospel that is a false gospel and doesn't center on the glory of God and the reconciling of sinners through Jesus, that that person is to be an anathema to you. It's meaning he's to be cursed by you. Don't listen to him. And he's speaking to the whole church. My preaching and teaching is not perfect. I hope it's solid and I hope it's biblically based. But don't believe me just because I'm me. Go to the scriptures. We all have a responsibility to be like the Bereans. 
All of us. And if I were to start preaching a heresy, or if I were to start to fudge on some essential area of doctrine, then according to Paul's words to the Galatians in Galatians 1, it's the collective responsibility of the church to rise up and say, Whoa, cowboy, you're wrong. But do you know enough to know when something's wrong? We all should, and we all need to. And this pragmatic self Help gospel is insidious. It's there. It's, it's, it lurks. It lurks in the corner all the time. And it's often, these are just some characteristics. This is maybe just me sounding like a grumpy Mr. Wilson wanting kids to get off his lawn. I, I know that. But the characteristics of churches like this are often, often everybody's beautiful on their website. You know, everybody's pretty. Everybody on stage just looks cool and hip. You know, the lights are low. It's a good mood music, good atmosphere. Everything's awesome. Everything's wonderful. Every service is just, man, that was fantastic. That was great, great message. This is a, this is a, this is a mediocre message. Put, put that on Facebook. Great. Went to church today, mediocre message. Let's just do that. It's wanting everything to be awesome, and everybody looks awesome. And everything has to be awesome because the, the, the thing that we want is to look sexy for Instagram pictures. And it is a man-centered gospel. And the, the, the thing that makes it so insidious is they can say all the right things, but there's a tone and there's a, there's, a, there's a kind of feel and culture that even though we're saying the right things, we're comporting ourselves in a man-centered sort of carnal way that wants to make much of us. And it's, it's, it's sneaky. It's sneaky. So let's be aware of those things. That's Paul's warning. Now we end with his promise. Verse 20. And he says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. I think the fact that he mentions Satan there in verse 20 is because these false teachers whose God is their belly are, I think, a result, whether directly or not, of Satan's attack against the true gospel. And he wants to give the church confidence, even as we increase our discernment, he wants to give us confidence that what God has promised will surely come to pass. Maybe not in this life, but eventually God will crush Satan under our feet when Jesus comes back. And this gets all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where we see the gospel first preached in shadow form in Scripture when Adam and Eve fell. And God is giving his sentences to Adam and Eve. He gives a sentence to the, the serpent, the devil. And he says in Genesis 3, 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Who is the offspring ultimately of Eve? It's the seed of Abraham. Who's the seed of Abraham? It's Christ. 
And there's coming a deliverer. There's coming a man. And God will become a man. And he will bruise. And we see it further developed here in verse 20 of Romans 16. He won't only bruise. He will crush your head. That's what's going to happen when Jesus comes back. Every enemy will be vanquished. Every residue of sin. Every foe that he has let alive to this point will be crushed. And we will be with him forever and ever. In his first coming, he atoned for our sin and he removed the penalty of sin, but not the presence of sin. And he left us here to deal with the presence of sin as we wrestle with it in our lives to show the surpassing worth of him who is coming again. And when he comes again, he will finally and fully vanquish all sin, death, the grave, and all of our foes. And we will be with him forever and ever. And we will be blessed. And we will have riches unknown. It will keep getting better day after day after day. And we will be the most prosperous. We will be the most blessed. We will be the richest people ever because we will be with the king who owns it all. And what's his will be ours, Paul says in Corinthians. And we will be with him. And until that day, we live out and lean into our future as he has saved us and called us to that holy calling. And he has left us here now so that through our lives, he might gather more to point not to riches in this life, or help in this life in a pragmatic sense, but so that we might be right with him. That's why you're here, friend. That's the true gospel. That's the true gospel. Believe it and lean into it and rehearse it and remember it and have compassion on those who believe false gospels. And let's be a church that holds up the true one. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for this text. It just seems kind of like a, an obscure text at the end of this great letter. But it's so important that we understand that we have wisdom and discernment. Help us to know and to love and to cherish good doctrine, truth, the glory of the gospel. Help us to have compassion on those who are caught up by false teachers. Help us rescue them as we are able and help us protect one another and guard one another and help to preserve one another until that day when Jesus will be our all in all and he will finally crush Satan under our feet. In Jesus' name, amen.